Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in, indeed welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. This is episode 75 of the Event Horizon for September 28, 2014, and we have a panel of guests uh, starting with our moderator, Susan Fox. Hello. We are <laughs> We are recording in front of a live audience at the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society in Van Nuys, California. Woo! Yes, ladies and germs, we are live and knocking the microphone over. And our company motto, we'll fix it in post. Um, why don't you, each of you, uh, introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Maggie Sakara. Um, and then what? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, only, <laughs> in spite of my great age, only recently become a real author. Um, my fantasy series is called Harper Errant, the first book of which is The Dragon Ring, followed by King's Raven, and just this May, The Mermaid's Stare. Um, and I guess and we'll be hangs a tail. Ah, ah, mermaid's tail. Aren't ah, you funny? Ah. Next, I'm S.P. Hendrick. I'm the author of two series: The Glastonbury Chronicles and Tales of the Derek She, and a new book coming out this October called Raven's Daughter. Yeah. I'm uh, Rob Soyder, also known as True Thomas's Storyteller. I recently wrote a series called uh, The Brass Jack Cycle. Um, it's kind of fantasy science fiction, and I'm also a traditional storyteller, and I'm very honored to be here with these beautiful ladies. Oh, Watch out for the redheads. That's what they always say. <laughs> well, you're probably wondering why we've brought you all together today. It's mostly because, like the inklings of the past, we, we, we have accumulated a, a collection of authors who are of an age and education level, and and a similarity of background, and yet you have come up with science fiction fantasy series which have gone in extremely diverse directions, but with some some of the same basic uh, assumptions and and mythological bases. I'm calling you the mythoi, is what I'm calling you. <laughs> what you guys decide to call yourselves? Well, you know, you can start believing your publicity, but that's never recommended. No, no, not a good idea. And where we know you from is historical recreation, and uh, that certainly influences your writing in different ways. It does mine, for sure. Um, does. All, of, all of my uh, 
experience in what we sometimes laughingly call living history, uh, since it's Renaissance fair based, not uh, you know a, re- a real site somewhere. Um, all the work I put into that for me that was been a twenty or thirty year research project, and inevitably things that have happened in the course of a theatrical bit or the things that have hurt, uh, that I've turned up in just my reading, a lot of that stuff has wound up in the stories. I also uh, got into it via the historical recreation. Actually, I got into the historical recreation because I wanted to see what it was like to wear the clothing that I was going to be writing about. To imagine walking down a staircase wearing something with an enormous train and long sleeves that I was going to trip over, that kind of thing. Um, I was interested in writing something during the, the time period of King Stephen, which is something that didn't actually get written for many, many years until uh, about two years ago. And I found myself caught up in the historical recreation. So it's a good groundwork because you have to read a lot of history and reading a lot of history and knowing a lot of the way the world works and what happens in certain societies when certain influences come on them really is a good thing to have in the background of your your knowledge when you go to, to try to write a universe that isn't exactly the same. I think pretty much everybody has heard Hemingway talk about, you know, if you're going to be an author, go out and do the things that inspire you. You know, be the fisherman, be the hunter, try the different things. Um, Like most geeky people, I've done the fighting and armor. I've played a billion role-playing games. I've dressed as every persona I could possibly imagine. And I'm a former jarhead. I was in the Marine Corps for a while. So all of that influenced my writing. So fortunately in in my series, I have both fantasy and and technology and various time levels and tech levels. So at one point there's black powder, there's sword and shield, there's very high tech. Now I haven't had a chance to play with blasters yet, but at some, yet, (laughs) but you know, somebody wants to bring me a plasma cannon, let's go out and play, I'm there. Well, they say that, you know, putting on real armor improves your D&D immeasurably. (laughs) Well, you understand flanking moves real quick. (laughs) And uh, people who make armor for, for, you know, big plate armor, you know, of the Renaissance type, at least one has wound up making spacesuits for the movies. And NASA, you know... Armageddon had had its flaws as a film on many levels, but the the spacesuits were great, and NASA <laughs> came sniffing around to see how he constructed them. So yep. I I find that just a very interesting conjunction Feed, of the past. Feedback and on the feedback. Meanwhile, back at the topic, um, <laughs> uh, tell us about your worlds, and where they came from, and how how your your myth- mythologies. The Similar t- mythologies uh, uh, came to shape them. World building? Well, all right. They keep staring at me. Mine's probably the simplest <laughs> because my fantasy world is really this one. <laughs> um, when I need a fantasy map, I Google it mostly and find where the castles are and where the river is and decide that there could have been an apple orchard in front of it, and maybe there was. There certainly could have been. There are apples in that part of England. Um, but because half of my cast are among the fae, they're fairies, yes, uh, and because the borderland of fairy overlaps our own world sort of at random, 
and yet has no boundaries of uh, to speak of. Um, my world starts out fairly simple and fairly it's fairly mundane, and then gets interesting. <laughs> um, I would say probably the 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 ground material is fairy tale more than anything else. I keep mm. and it's not always intentional. I keep finding that oh. Look, it's about to be the Brimmentown musicians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, or there's a Cinderella story going on here. Or is it, oh no, 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 that's Sleeping Beauty. Okay, and then we move on. And there's, it's not that I'm retelling those stories, because heaven knows that's been done and done very well on occasion. But that's, uh, it's like, those are the pieces that contribute to the characters and to the events in my stories. My stories started out in two different directions because they're two series that sort of converged. The Tales of the Derek She starts out in Roman Britain. Um, started out with me saying, why isn't there any new Celtic mythology? Um, the, the Celtic gods are supposed to be immortal. Why isn't anybody telling stories about them anymore? And in Hollywood, we get the, the Greco-Roman myths and we get them made into movies and TV shows and stuff like that. But these poor Celts haven't had a lot written about them, and it isn't just because nobody can pronounce the words. Mm-hmm. So, it's so funny. They all end badly. Well, <laughs> and then there was this young man at a Renaissance fair, back to the historical recreations, who it was a very, very hot day, and he was dressed in a, a lovely kilt and everything, and he smiled at me, and he had fangs. This was high noon, and there had to be a reason for this to happen. So my stupid little head started going and and thinking of all the inconsistencies in the Celtic mythology. For instance, Cahulan is given to wed the daughter of Skya, and you never hear from her again. She is never mentioned once more after that happens. Well, what if they had a son? And what if that son was taken by the Morrigan on his 19th birthday to watch with her until the she came back to Tarot Mound and he was made immortal, but he had to live on human blood? Okay, that's a premise. That's a, a, a springboard for something. This is so far gone from Roman Britain in through uh, Robin Hood was his last encounter, fighting against King John. Um, and my King Stephen story is in there too. But That's he's a, a lot of time to cover. Well, he's, he's in a, there are there are <laughs> gaps. He gets on this mysterious white horse and goes off and ends up in a different time. Um, but in the background, there are all always these same characters. There's always the sacred king and the person who's slaying him for the good of the land. The other series starts in 2065, and it is their story. King Stephen, uh, who after the royalty has been dismissed in England and they're all commonwealth and all this bit, uh, finds out that he's in reality the sacred king and he has to assume the throne because there's a great natural disaster and various and sundry other things happen. But he has a, a very good friend who he recognizes from a prior incarnation and they go through various and sundry adventures together through time Dougal from the other books is always in the background there, and they're always in the background in his books. And eventually in volumes five and six of the Glastonbury Chronicles, they meet up again off-world. The off-world is the part that was interesting to do because it is a different universe. It is a different planet. They've got people who settled there from England, the last outpost of of the British Empire, 
before something disastrous happened to Earth. They're cut off from their supply lines. There's nothing anymore. They have not the same natural things that they have on Earth, the same resources and all, and they have to learn to cope in this different world. It has been terraformed somewhat. They brought trees with them, the sacred trees of the, of the Celtic alphabet, and all of these other things and all of the, the various customs of their ancestors. But they have to cope with a, a planet that is harsh in many ways, that has what they call a, a freak lightning that comes up and takes over and they don't know when, when it's going to happen. It's not. It's caused by atmospheric pressure being different. The tea that they drink, the atmospheric pressure is not stable. If it's boiled at too high a temperature, it becomes hallucinogenic. Yet, drinking it is the antidote to the lightning. They're no longer affected by it if they've, they've done it, but everybody's afraid of it because of the visions they get. So it's a whole different kind of a universe, but the main thing in is it's consistent. And that's the main thing that you need to have in a universe if you're creating it. Okay, Rob, you start with an entirely different tech level <laughs> in a world that's already already been built. You're in a much further future. Yeah, well, uh, you know, one of the things I always thought it was, wouldn't it be cool if you had the great epic space battles and you had some, you know, sword and black powder and powered armor, and a little bit of magic, and let's throw in some psionics in there as well. And so, you know, trying to figure out how this would all work was kind of one of those, uh, okay, so I pulled this over here, and I pull that over there, and stretch it here. Uh, basic concept for my universe uh, in the Brass Jack series was the idea that Earth has been wiped out and had many cultures, and it's been wiped out two or three or four or five times. And now it's a cultural relic in a great big space empire. They have their spies here watching everything that we're doing, and they love us. And they're not paying us any copyrights or royalties. Everything that we do, all us creative little monkeys here, gets passed on to the rest of the universe. At one point, cedars came, took various early cultures, and spread them out throughout the universe in amongst all the other alien cultures. Some of them sprouted and did really well and took over everything nearby. On one little tiny island out in the middle of nowhere, one little tiny world called Lembob, magic works. The Empire doesn't know this. They just know it messes with their psionics. And that's where the story takes place because that's the place where all the spooks and spies and, and uh, people who don't want to have any interference from the Empire hang out. And the, the main story takes place in essentially a Celtic colony that's roughly black powder and sword, and there's a little bit of magic happening. And in amongst that that town, think Callahan Saloon sort of saloon, you have people who actually are very, very high-tech, and they're just hanging out in the background wanting no interference from the Empire. And so I've got everything from starships and psionic to people actually stirring cauldrons to um, early influence, Earth influence, in the fact that people get some of the cultural references that uh, through generations have come back across the empire. So tell us about the, the government in your story then. I like to steal names. And so, for instance, there is a st uh, solar system or a uh, star system that is run by the Fomorians. If you're familiar with Celtic 
folklore mythology, they are kind of the unshapen ones. Another group is called the Didanen. Um, there is uh, the High Lord, uh, who eventually got the empire going, um, was the Gerhardt. And he was the King Arthur figure. And they eventually start rolling up on all the other cultures and all the other aliens and gathering their technology and creating um, a royalty. And you have three different power bases. You have people who have psionics, who are the gentry. So think Psylor, um I call them Psylords, but they're like Jedi, but like normal human beings. They, they aren't out to do anybody good. They just are people, good or bad. And then um, there are people who have a lot of uh, high-tech enhancements, and they're the uh, people who kind of make everything work, and then you've got everybody else. I've got a, basically a monarchy that at one point or another has um, a revolution, and the good guys go underground, the bad guys take over. The bad guys don't particularly think that uh, there is any such thing as religion, and you can be executed for believing in one. They also have their own version of science, which has very little to do with science. And before too long, nothing works anymore. Nothing runs anymore. They're blown back to the dark ages as far as what goes on in that planet. And um, you've got people hanging out in the forest, just sort of, sort of like Robin Hood's people might have been back then, sort of the peasants hanging out in the forest and trying to survive against these raiders that come through. And all along, there is a deck of tarot cards running through it that they've preserved the history and the mythology of their people in. And a very few people have copies of these, these cards, but each card tells a story of their history and what's happened. And they know when the king is coming because his card will turn up, and there will be somebody who can see it and who can read it and will know exactly what is going to happen and the fact that thing, the tides are going to turn, the king is going to show up. So provided there's someone who no, still knows the Lord and the signs. There are always a few people that are hidden mm -hmm. out who know when things are going to happen. There are always people in uh, their secret society of the, the Order of the Sword and the Rose that, that know what's going on. Well, there's always a guide. Guides are important in Maggie's story. The King's Raven in particular. Well, yeah, the Raven is a, a character that in folklore has, a, in num a number of different people's folklore has a number of different functions, one of it which is accompanying the dead to the afterlife. Um, of course, among the Northwestern Native Americans, he also is the bringer of the sun. And there's, my Raven is the King of Fairies' principal gentleman. And uh, when Ben Harper, who is a... TV show host, reality show host and on a British These are program. life after the BBC. I don't know. You know. Well, he wasn't quite sure either, and he certainly didn't believe any of this was going on when he first encounters uh, Aubrey, who was otherwise Oberon. Um, and uh, I was something I was just actually playing with the other day. It's, it's something that's crossed my mind more than once, but hasn't really come up in the, in the course of storytelling. But we call over on the king of the fairies, the king of fairy, and Titania, his queen, and all that. But those things, it seems to me, are imposed upon fairy by humans who are only observing through a veil. Well, the fairies don't write their own stories unless there's something about some of you guys that I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, I yes, I have a feel. I, I, well, no, I'm not actually getting secret messages from I Beyond the Veil. No, no, no. Uh, they're just good stories. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. I think one of the focuses that we have um, for this panel is is that we're talking about world building mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the commonalities. And one thing that we all three of us have in common is we have Fey influence. Mm -hmm. That's true, right? And one of the things is I treat the Fey as more or less an alien race, and that's kind mm -hmm. of where some of the technology comes from. Well, they are alien. They do things for reasons that are not human. That's I right. keep running into stories by no one here. Um, where the Fey are of another race that shares the world with them, with with humanity, but they tend to be just kind of like us, only prettier, or stronger, or more. They're mysterious because they have a different past, but they aren't really that much. There's nothing particularly special or magical about them, and I've always found that kind of annoying. I, I think mean, it's what's, lazy, what's, and it yeah, doesn't really like line point? up with, with the mythology, honestly. Let me ask you, ladies, a quick question. When you sat down and started writing, did you build your worlds first? No. Mm, no, but again, a lot of my world is already built. The first story, the first book, uh, well, one of the things they do, one of the things Raven does is help Ben uh, move through time. And... Uh, the dragon ring is actually a piece of jewelry. It's a Viking arm ring that has been broken in three pieces, and the pieces have to be tracked down, mm -hmm. uh, but not actually brought back. Because we have to come back to, to our own time and see what the, those pieces of gold have become, and then put those together. Because you can't take otherwise, it would take them out of the time stream, um, and who knows what would happen then. Step on that butterfly. Oh, Everything exactly. And in fact, Ben at one point says, what if I step on a butterfly? And he says, so don't. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> it's, you know, what are, you, what, are, what are you doing stepping on butterflies anyway? I never intended to write a series, let alone two. I wrote one book. I killed them off. They were dead. That oh, was it. Right. <laughs> oh, and well, yet, you're dealing with reincarnation, aren't you? Okay, so they tap me on the shoulder and say, we're back. We want more <laughs> stories. <laughs> and one day they, you know, I write first person and it's like taking dictation and sometimes I will argue with them and say no you can't say that and they say shut up and write it anyway and two books later I'll find out it's an important plot point that I would never would have considered if I had actually deleted it when I thought I would but the, the world just sort of built itself it just sort of was logical and they would tell me what was happening in the world they would tell me what they observed and I knew nothing in the plot or the world, or anything, until they told me what was happening. It was never an, a conscious construct. It's uh, very Bossy interesting. <laughs> well, and it's and with the the fay, it's the she with me, and um, oh, the they, she who must be obeyed. That, exactly, <laughs> they are the she who must be obeyed. And the whole point of of um, watching with her until the the she came back to Tirnanog. Tirnanog was not necessarily a place on earth they had come they, they talk about the she having arrived in Ireland mm -hmm. they came from somewhere else the where north. they came from was further than the north they came from another world I'll just say Liverpool. and they came <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they decided it was safe to return to their world but they had no way of getting back except through humans to get them back see in my uh, series I had to 
I, as I started writing, I realized, holy crap, I've got to figure out how everybody's moving around. And then there came a question, am I going to have just one type of faster-than-light travel? Well, no, in my kind of scheme, I've got all these different races. Everybody's kind of coming up with their various versions. And so how does that affect? How do you get in and out of the solar system? If these people can move faster than these people, how does that change the game? Um, I was inspired, uh, Mr. Pornell's here, um, I was inspired by Ringworld engineers when I read it as a kid because... That would be Mr. Niven. Niven. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mr. Not mine, that's Larry. Yeah, uh, Mr. <laughs> Niven. Um, who's not here? Uh, <laughs> uh, I was inspired by that because, you know, they had all the difficulties of getting onto and off of the world. And there was a lot of math and a lot of thinking that you had to, to think to make sense of, of how it worked. Well, they also had some of the best NASA consultants in the world at their fingertips, thanks to uh, science fiction fandom. Right. And, and so at certain points, you, you look at the cloth and you go, okay, MacGuffin. <laughs> Psionics work. How do they work? I don't know. Boom. That's the attitude that I take towards magic. Yeah. It uh, just works. It's very right. magic. It doesn't have to have but science. It, yeah, but, but at least in your, your books, you know, different people have different ways of getting around. You can get to the, to the corner market on your feet, on a bicycle, on a horse, or in, you know, on a motorcycle, or a, a Formula One racer. It's just, it doesn't matter how you get there, but you get there sooner or later. Right, and I think uh, one of the things that's beholden to us as world creators is we have to decide what our dominant technology is. So you went with modern world mostly. Mm -hmm. You know, people are driving around in cars. and mm -hmm. But the, the way people travel, uh, the way Ben and Raven have to travel, involves music. Actually, the, mu the magic is based on music. Oh, cool. Uh, or the magic is the music, or the music is the magic. There's a, there's a musical there somewhere. There's, there's definitely a... a, a <laughs> magical uh, music set. Uh-huh. And the, the first book, I actually got to use a lot of lyrics because they're all folk songs. Yeah. Um, and there's magic recent. right there as well. Absolutely. Uh, some of the some of the topics of those songs are magical. And sometimes it's just the fact of the song, whether it, um, they get home at one point seeing Bruce Springsteen, you know, seeing Born in the USA. So <laughs> <laughs> I can quote the title if I can't, even if I can't use the words. Um, and your your books, you have a variety of different tech levels as well. Because there's a variety of different time periods. Yeah. So yeah, the, the tech the level of ancient Ireland versus the tech level of the Plantagenets really does make a difference. Yeah, you're, and then the then the tech tech level of when we get into the 21st century, because well, yeah. uh, Glastonbury Chronicle starts in 2065. So there oh, are a little. I know you were sad when uh, the. the Last royal baby was born, and suddenly you were in a you were an alternate timeline. Yeah, suddenly I was <laughs> in an alternate right timeline. Name, they didn't it. name him Richard. Oh well, but then that book started being written in 1994 when William himself was just in knee pants and uh, didn't have to think about it too much at yeah, that point. So. Still, he may take a throne name of Richard. It could happen. <laughs> it could happen. Um, that yeah, the the technology changes as it gets further in and then suddenly there's no more Earth and they end up on a, on a transport from Mars to this other planet and then the transports stop because they're at war for hundreds of years back and forth and that goes back to horses and walking and carts which is pretty reliable even today horses I see them all the time not in my neighborhood in my neighborhood. Okay. Well, yes. You have a nicer neighborhood than I do. 
So um, you mentioned horses. Um, just even in the it, if you have a magical world, horses can be different. You oh, know, yeah. you can have your shadow facts. You know, who's going to get you there faster? You can have the white horses, McMahon and McClear, right? It really mm-hmm. depends on or how. Or Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that. <laughs> well, I do have, you know, the regular horses, but then Dougal's point of transport is this mysterious white mare. Mm-hmm. He jumps on her back, and he's in a different place. As a matter of fact, the white mare comes in at the very beginning of um, the Glastonbury Chronicles, where the, the mysterious red-haired girl shows up in a thunderstorm riding a white horse, the lightning hits the ground near her, and she's thrown off and unconscious, and the horse disappears. And she's got amnesia and has no idea who she is. And that was the very beginning of that, that book. So horses, the horses. Deus ex machina? No, horses. Boom, <laughs> 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 you're there. Yeah. In a literal James. sense. That's it. <laughs> But, I mean, imagine how things would have changed if, if Gandalf had just summoned an, uh, an eagle and they'd flown to Mount Doom and he'd thrown the Hobbit in the ring in. It'd yeah. <laughs> be a I'd short book. It'd be a very yeah. short. But transportation changes things. If, you're, if your world, uh, uh, the world you're building is, is sail and rail, you know, that's going to change how your characters move around. Now, all of a sudden, things like tide become important. Now, you know, uh, battles depend on how you're moving stuff back and forth. It's uh, every well, every line has always been a factor. Yeah, it's it's a cat's cradle. Anytime you're world building, anytime you move one string, it affects the others. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things you're looking for is symmetry. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is okay, elves are amazing and wonderful, but they're rare. You know, lightsabers are awesome weapons, but you can't shoot them. Right. I mean, it'd be pretty simple if you had a lightsaber. Pew, pew, pew. You know? Yeah, but there's no use in a space blaster. Right, 20 feet long. <laughs> Tag, your in. Blaster. <laughs> <laughs> but that would pretty much change the, the balance. And so you, you look for symmetry, and then where you as an author get to play games is the spike in that symmetry. Okay, this person can do this, this person can do this, but Sauron can do this. All right, now you've got a, a major plot point that you can play with. Well, they, and boy, Tolkien was all about technical technological levels, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mordor's tech level was was just just running rampant over everybody. Well, yeah, and all of a sudden you see, like in the movies, suddenly we have dwarvish blasting powder or whatever that is. You know, don't ask me about yeah, that. Yeah. I have no idea. They needed explosions. Well, yeah. Somehow Let's they had to go there. To get, <laughs> excavate <laughs> the mines a little The faster. three authors shake their heads and spit. <laughs> it was magic. Yeah, magic. It was. Magic. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So that settles that whole problem. So that they don't have to invent gunpowder if they have, you know, yeah, lasting magic. You see if they made friends with the dragon. Now, here, here's That's another, harder than another sound. question for you ladies. Did you have histories going in? Well, most of them, yes. the two of them kind of worked on, oh, on yeah. the basis of, starting of from history existing to begin mythologies. Yeah. S- starting with the earlier and then working up through um, into, into Glastonbury Chronicles, there was definite history because they keep reliving parts of history. They keep re-experiencing past incarnations where such and such happened and such and such happened, which all led up to what's happening there and remembering things 
to see a larger picture of what's really going on, to see the whole tapestry, not just to be the threads in the tapestry. So uh, was there like a secret history that was read to the characters? They wake up at a certain point knowing it. All of a sudden, it's it's an awakening. They've been living their lives perfectly they, ordinary. They'd be, they be living their lives for, for a while, and something will trigger it just before it's needed. The one person always is wakened up um, about three years before the other one so he can prepare, so he's there when the other person wakes up. And it's a, a thing of which it is always the king's best friend, closest, closest, dearest friend who must slay him. And they're prepared for this because it's been happening throughout time. And there are a circle of three other people who always show up, and they show up in the same order each time until they know that this is the time that this has to happen in order for the land to live. And it's always forced upon them at just exactly the right time. And there's usually something trying to block the way. I liked the, your variation on that theme of having them be twins. Oh, and yeah. there, and until it happens, you're not totally sure which twin until is the I wrote the last chapter. I wasn't sure <laughs> who, which, who was who. Um, yes, the, the the premise of what happens if the firstborn son of the king of England is uh, conjoined twins. Oops, who's king? Them, but they get separated, but. Who is the king and who is the On slave? the other hand, that makes the whole royal we thing very easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Suddenly, it all makes sense. We are not amused. <laughs> no, really, we. It's the Gemini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if they're editors, you know, you get the That's editorial. True. <laughs> editorial <laughs> me and the mouse in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Well, for history, since uh, each of this, each book involves uh, the guys having to venture into the past at some point. Um, this the, the new one is going to be a little odd because there's no Elizabethan segment in it. How are you going to get through that? I'm not sure. <laughs> there's yeah. been an Elizabethan segment in all of them, and that's you know really my area of expertise. Um, well, you've written some I, of the definitive how to live in the Elizabethan I, era. I too. wrote a little book. <laughs> I wrote a little book called... Big Book. Well, it's, book. It's, only, it's only that big. <laughs> it's it's uh, like 180 pages of uh, okay. called A Compendium of Common Knowledge, 1558 to 1603. Uh, a classic of the field. Apparently. Well, I just sold a case of them to the Ohio Renaissance Fair, which is always nice mm. to see. Um, it's kind of everything you need to know to be an Elizabethan, uh, but in brief, in little bits easily accessed, easily remembered. Um, it's it, Yeah, a certain level of notoriety has come with this little book. Uh, it is, like I, well, like I said, the Fairwoods of 30-year Renaissance, or, uh, research project. Uh, I'm getting so old, I can't remember the numbers. And uh, that material is just, is always really very present for me. So at some point, I, well, you got to keep using it for something. I don't do fair anymore. And I don't do SEA anymore, and I don't have any place to wear these clothes. So I might as well work it into the story somehow. Uh, last time, he actually got to meet Shakespeare, which I found very nerve-wracking, writing lines for Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not the first one to do it, but it still made me nervous. Um, and um, But then we also had, I mean, we had Alfred the Great and uh, a couple of people nobody ever heard of because they were 
well, not real, in, in an 18th century manor house. Um, oh, where else? Would, oh, and a little bit of uh, Roman Britain, which we're also going back to in the new book, which will be called, so far, A Face on the Wall. Um, but Mermaid's Tale really only goes to two this time. We big segment in Roman Londinium. And um, what was the other one? I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> um, things I had to research in much more detail. And the trouble then it winds up being that you have to stop reading and start writing. Uh-huh. There's just so much cool stuff. Uh, the new book also is going to take us to the London Blitz, and that's been giving me mm. nightmares. Reading, well, reading letters. It was a nightmare. Most, mostly reading letters. Yeah. Um, and I keep finding new things in that going, I could use this. Oh, no, no, this, this, this. This is something. This is part of the story. If I just twist it just that little bit, um, so I in fact have to throw away everything I wrote last weekend. I'll find <laughs> well, my- not throw it away. <laughs> I'll find myself um, doing reading something entirely different, and something will stick out and say that that's part of it. Like um, the the story of Jeffrey Plantagenet and Philip of France. Who they got it all wrong in Lion and Winter. It was they had a lot of things wrong. Yeah, in Lion it was and Jeff, Jeffrey, and, right. Jeffrey and Philippe were were so taken with one another that when Jeffrey died in a tournament accident, Philippe threw himself on the grave and said, "Bury me with him." So I, I said, were, "I thought he was with Richard, wasn't he?" Richard's no, friend? oh, it was it was Jeffrey. Jeffrey became the uh, Duke of Brittany. And Arthur, who Jeff, was Jeffrey's son, should have been the King of England, not John. But Arthur was in Brittany. And a when, very tiny when, child. Yeah, well, they, they, he was about 12, I think. Well, he predeceased his grandfather, didn't he? Or no? He, uh, Jeffrey died uh, before Arthur was born. Arthur was a posthumous birth. Oh, right. And John was in England and could, could take the throne, but Jeffrey was the second son, and it, therefore, his progeny should have, should taken, have been. taken the throne of England. But John says, no. No, I don't think so. And that's the part of that whole book, um, Pale Mare's Fosterling. I was trying to get Arthur back on the throne, which didn't work, but they had a good good time trying. But <laughs> it's, it's the whole what-if factor. It's, you, you'll find something that will just trigger your head, and you'll say, well, what if it really happened this way? Oh, James Terrell was responsible for the death of the little princes in the tower. Walter Tyrrell killed William Rufus. Are they related? Maybe there's a whole bunch of Tyrrells out there. Maybe there's a secret society that's charged with killing the sacred king. They're Tyrrell the Terribles. Yes. Maybe there's this, this, this order of the sword and the rose. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And just so that's take off. Came from. Take off. Just... From from that point, the whole history evolves, and the whole world. And yes, this is actually world building also, because you're taking the world you know and you're shifting it maybe 18 degrees into a whole different situation of how things really happened, and telling the story as it really was. Except you don't really know that whether or not you've made it up or whether it really did happen that way. And after a time, you start to believe it. You don't know anything. That's true. That's that's your method. Uh, Rob, what was your method? Uh, you know, the um, I've never been completely clear on where your, uh, your your galactic civilization came from. Is Earth involved in this? Or? It is. Um, How far ahead in time is it? Borrowing I, from uh, standing <laughs> on the shoulders of giants, I use the concept of cedars. Um, at one point, um, 
one of the Earth cultures evolved, an alien race grabbed a bunch of specimen humans and propagated them. And although it's not really clear in the novels because there's more in the future, um, the basic concept is, is why are humans being spread across the galaxy? Because we grow like weeds and we're tough. <laughs> and humans adapt really well and they're tough. And um, on this backward little world where most of my story takes place, a place called Lembob, which sounds about as Billy Bob as you can get, <laughs> um, it's, it's very low tech. And any technology tends to break down on it. Well, one of the later Earth cycles where civilization grows, the planet develops, they send off some generation ships, and one of those generation ships lands on Lembob and finds human beings that, that have been seated there. So on that ship is a, uh, a robot, essentially a clockwork robot, who was um, at the uh, Museum of Natural History and now at the future Museum of Natural History, but now he's back on this backwards world where most technology fries out, but since he's a brilliant work of clockwork genius, he can still move. And so he's there surrounded by, by essentially barbarians who know something about Aristotle and history and, thing like, and things like that, but they don't know why. They don't know quite where they came from. And so... The cedars move humanity across, and one particular group springs up, the Dedanin. They develop space flight, find a friendly alien race nearby that has wonderful tech, beat them up, and take it, because they're humans, and say, hey, we're starting an empire. You want to join us? No? Fine. Give us your toys. And essentially, they start... Uh, prime you know, directive, my butt. Well, well, yeah, there is no prime directive. My, actually, there is... There is one um, one thing that uh, all the low-tech planets are kept at, at a low-tech. Um, it's called the interdite, and the Empire enforces it. And the reason is, is hey, we <laughs> so want... So they don't become competition. Well, not only that, but they want troops. Because one of the things the Empire does when they want to take over the rest, or when they're fighting enemies, they fly to one of these low-tech planets of very tough people, but just not very technical, they grab them, throw them into troop ships, indoctrinate them, put them in armor, give them weapons, and bada bing, we have troops. And so, you know, uh, and that is one harsh draft, right? Yeah. And so, Lembob is a perfect place for that because it's a hard, hard-ass world. And so, they grab people off of Lembob who are Russian, essentially, or Celts, or what have you, people living out in the, the boonies put them through the indoctrination service and now they're off fighting the battles. The only problem is, is they're losing. And in my series, one of the key things is the people on the world, because they're friends in the village, there are people who are high tech who are just kind of hiding out. They say, you know, we can go get them. There's a lost, buried starship here. We can dig this sucker up and we can go rescue our friends. And that starts the whole cavalcade of mistakes. <laughs> so, I so. see. Sort of an element of the high crusade in that. There was just no reason that should have worked. No, no. Uh, but they uh, had help that they weren't expecting. Right. Well, the, the visitors helped because there were high-tech people there. But there's also this element of, uh, you know, this really, really shouldn't work. And it wouldn't hurt if we asked the local witches to help us out with this a little bit, too. Witches, yeah. Right. And, and so, like, for instance. That's 
one of the, the 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 witches are asked to do something about the orbital orbital station that's flying above them outside of the range that messes up the technology. And one of the witches looks down, and I won't mention who she's based on, <laughs> and says, "No one we know." This strange logo, this symbol. What is that? Oh, that's the symbol of the Empire. Do they put it on everything? Every piece of gear they have. Well, that'll do just great. <laughs> and the next thing you know, all hell starts breaking loose on this on the station. So that's it's just it's it's the weird convocation of both high tech and low tech. Um, you know, uh, you know, they have to convince the guys very strongly. No, you cannot bring the horses with you. The horses cannot go on the starship. I just want to bring a few wee ones. No. <laughs> Paul Anderson let us bring them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I let them bring them. <laughs> so, so as Little Lost Princeling starts, what year is it on Earth? Do actually, no. Right. Um, I don't know if it's I 70 actually, AD or 7000 AD. It could be anywhere in between. Well, the, the interesting uh, thing is, is I actually just wrote a short story called The Box Went Ping. And the what? The Box Went Ping. <laughs> and that's the title of the story. And it's based on our current time. And it's roughly in the Brass Jack era, uh, mm-hmm. what's going on right now. Okay. And so um, in, the, in the short story, there's been a starship watching our planet, keeping all the smugglers and all the bad people away from Earth because that's their own little culture farm. And all of a sudden, somebody who's sitting up there watching board, the box goes, and they look down, and they call up a uh, a recording, and when they look at the recording, they're talking, uh, it's one of the, the watch agents from hundreds of years ago, saying, these two kids with green skin came wandering I know that story exactly it's it, it, story. it's called the green children and it's an English it's a story about two English uh, little English kids who came out of nowhere claiming to be from the fairy realms or someplace else and so that story picks up what happened to those green kids oh okay oh, and right. so and, yeah. and it turns out hey guess what there's aliens involved and all this sort of stuff so it, it ties into the modern day with the watchtower. And I'm not talking about the guys who come knocking on your door. No. <laughs> and when can we see that story? It's already, it's, it's already written. I sent it out to my beta readers, and um, I hope to have it up. I've never done the short story thing on Amazon before. Has anybody here done it? Um, no. David Gerald's done it a lot. I wanted to try it because people have, have um, you know, done the short stories up on Amazon and for Charles like a Delis dollar. Started doing that too, and I wanted to see if it could be done. I have another couple of short stories I want to try and see if people would be willing to pay a buck for a story. What do you guys think? Is that something you'd be interested in? I would. Might be a dollar a story. You know, something to get you through lunch. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got a Kindle. I've got lunch. A dollar. One dollar stories all the time. Yeah. Probably easily almost hit the hundred dollar. <laughs> People will do anything for a dollar. Have you guys thought about that? I don't write it's crossed stories. my mind. Yeah, I, 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 I don't see how that would be a possibility. You can't, clear your mouth, you can't clear your throat in less than a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and I mean that in a loving way. You're a true Celt. I'm sorry about that, darling. Yes, Speaking sir. Speaking of true Celt, Niall. Yes. When you say a short story, how many words are you talking? Niall asks, how many words in that short story? Um, Just a moment. Hang on a second. Um, I think, checking the computer. Okay, well, first of all, I'm a really bad person to ask this question of because Brass Jack was originally one book. And I handed it over to the editor. And the editor said, how many words is it true? And I said, 276,000. And she went, you've committed trilogy. And I went, really? Yeah. A, a book is 100,000 words. And I went, Wait, I remember Dune and everything else being the when you I was growing up. Remember how much trouble he had trying to sell Dune? Yeah, but I I grew up when books were oof, yeah. you know, not these little tiny. Oh, sorry, yeah. I'm showing my age. <laughs> it's seventeen k. Okay, no, Novelette, I think is the proper term. Yeah. We'll have it's to look four that categories. They, yeah, they are categorized. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so for a buck, eh. <coughs> so. You could probably do better than that, but maybe you should start pitching it. Is it one that you can read without uh, yeah, yeah, no, Jack? It's, Is it it's, independently it's, comprehensible? You know, as, you know, it's the same old idea of, oh, look, there's a space station up, up above that we don't know anything about, and the aliens are mucking about and getting into trouble. That's hey. right. Sell the story. Yeah. <laughs> <Seducing>. <laughs> yeah, it's got potential. I've, I've, I've only just started thinking about it because I've really only started writing short stories again, um, something I was never very good at, as my rejection slips will tell you from, if I still have them, who keeps those things? Uh, from some years ago, and um, just lately kind of started looking at the concept again. My problem with short stories is um, once you get into the head of a short story, I can't put them down. I like, oh, and then they did this, and then they did this, and, and then they did this. And then well, that's how you get you know, series of short stories. I mean, it works for Spider Robinson. But mm -hmm. I grew up reading Analog and all the great science fiction magazines where you had these beautiful, beautiful little short stories that just blow your mind. You see, I've been in news too long. I couldn't write anything longer than 300 You guys <laughs> grew up reading Analog and what were the other ones? Fantasy and Science Fiction. Fantasy, Fantasy and, and Science, science fiction, fiction still with us. And Asimov's. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, those anthologies, man, each one of them, some of the, you're, there was almost always one short story in there that was worthy of a series. There'd be that one story that just like, oh, my head hurts. But a lot of the great world building in the past was was through shorter works. Um, Cordwainer Smith's uh, Lensman. Cordwainer Smith, not oh, E.E. E. Smith. Sorry. <laughs> but yes, well, actually, yeah. a lot of Larry Niven stuff too. Yeah. The um, tells the known universe. But a lot of those were, you know. You Sorry pick up stories. Neutron Star and you can read any of those stories mm -hmm. as a one-off. Yeah. Yep. But who wants to? <laughs> Since he's conveniently collected them for us in one place. Yeah, but they were all independent. But they were individual they were in ori originally, magazines yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. To begin with. All right. Since we're sitting here in front of three microphones, I challenge you both to a short story. <laughs> can I dump a bucket of ice water over my head instead? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see what you come up with. Oh, okay. Hey, what are the yeah. terms of the um, Okay, okay. The, deal, the deal will be this. Uh, first of all, how long is a short story? Somebody tell me what this is. 3,000 words. 3,000 words. 
Okay. Is that maximum? I want to. Yeah, I want to cap it. All right. Okay, three thousand words. Because, All well, right, it's still short. It's not you're, you're an expert on something like uh, Elizabethan and stuff okay. like that. You pick some. You pick a topic for me in your bailiwick, and I have <laughs> to write a short story. Oh. Oh, you're in such trouble. <laughs> Do you want to come back? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to come back as a toad? I, 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 I have to think of that now, or could we hold this to... to uh, all right, we'll, 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 and, okay, and then okay. I will pick a topic for you, and you uh, you will pick a topic for one of us. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll pick it, we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay. All right. Sure. Um, deadline. Deadlines um, are critical. Christmas? Okay. Christmas... This what year. year. <laughs> <laughs> 2014. 3,000 words. How hard could it be? That's Ooh, famous last words. It would have been shorter, but I ran out of time. Okay. <laughs> All right, so by Christmas, a short story. This is going to be a great exercise. You're going to love this. No. This is, this is, this is a true harassing S.P. Hendricks here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's really all about. It's just annoying her. Yeah. No, no. Harass is two words. Mm. You are harassing her. I'm harassing her. Well, that's how I remember it. I've tried to pronounce it that way, and nobody knows what I'm saying. Tough. So I don't anymore. It should be Harris. So, so wrapping it that up. That sounds like a tweed. Okay. <laughs> or an island. That's that's true. It could be Lewis and Harris. So are we going to share There's these stories yes. with the uh, fine folks here? Sure. We will find a way we to publish them, perhaps they want as, a, to do that. as a mini and a mini collection, um, you know, of media yes. of your choice there. So okay. monster tra- tra- uh, tractor pulls, right? You're big on if that, If we can, right? I think we'd like to invite you back in December, there we so go. That we can go over these stories. All right, <laughs> so okay. we're, really, we're really going to okay. put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> All monsters heard you. Okay. Okay. Sure. Monster truck rally. I didn't say that. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. Maybe I emphasis on the monster. Manage, but you know, you know. monster trucks roar. <laughs> thank you, Maggie Sakara. <laughs> Sue Mayer and Rob Soyder. S.P. Hendricks. S.P. Hendricks. Thank no, you. That, that's Hendrick. her, not me. Just <laughs> 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 John Hendricks has no S. Episode 75. No S. Krypton Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. You have just heard episode 75 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for October 4th, 2014, recorded on August 28th, 2014, before a live audience at the clubhouse of the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, the world's oldest science fiction club. Our guests have been Robert Soiter, S.P. Hendrick, and Maggie Sakara. Your host was Krypton Radio's executive producer, Susan Fox. This episode will air again on October 5th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. 
Once all the episodes have aired, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was Mark Schermeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.